Well, good morning, and it's good to be with you, and especially good to be with you on this special Sunday for your congregation as you dedicate and move into this new space. It's a very lovely space, I must say, and it's great to be with you today. I bring you greetings from Calvin Theological Seminary and from its president, Jewel Maidenblick. We just completed our first full week of classes this past week, where we've welcomed new students and our returning students and been re-engaging again with the many online students, so we thank you for your prayers for the seminary as we equip men and women for service in God's kingdom. Turning this morning to the Gospel of Matthew, early in the Gospel, uh, this not long after um, uh, the, the temptations of Jesus in the wilderness, and uh, the launch, actually, uh, as you can see, uh, of Jesus' public ministry. So we're at Matthew 4, and I'm going to read from the 12th verse through to the end of the chapter. Matthew 4 at the 12th verse. Now when Jesus heard that John, that is John the Baptist, had been arrested, he withdrew to Galilee. He left Nazareth and made his home in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what had been spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Land of Zebulun, land of Naphtali, on the road by the sea, across the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who sat in the region in the shadow of death, light has dawned. And from that time on, Jesus began to proclaim, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. As he walked by the Sea of Galilee... He saw two brothers, Simon, who was called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea because they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me, and I'll make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. And as he went from there, he saw two other brothers, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother, John, in the boat with their father, Zebedee, mending their nets, and he called them. And immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Now Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought to him all the sick, all those who were afflicted with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he cured them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and from beyond the Jordan." We give thanks to God for his word. Well, you know, most every profession or or line of work has what could be called its own inside talk, its own jargon, its own language, almost. Listen to doctors talking to nurses in a hospital, and you pick up on this immediately. Uh, Nurse, given that the patient's EF is 45, I'd like to order an echo as well as a Chem 7 panel and lights, and then let's keep tabs on the EGFR so the nephrology can monitor renal perfusion in light of compromised cardiopulmonary activity. It's a little hard to even get that out. And then, of course, there's the alphabet soup inside almost any organization where we use shorthand abbreviations for committees and such. 
For instance, at Calvin Seminary, you might hear someone say, well, here at CTS, we adhere to the relevant ATS standards and Title IX strictures, and we process complaints through FSDC, the DOS, and the CEO, bringing it to CPGR and the BOT when needed. Now, you know, when you're on the inside, most of that just sort of rolls off of you. You don't even realize how few people in the wider world would understand any of that until somebody overhears you talking like that and then looks at you with utter confusion in her eyes. But you know, this happens with really familiar words inside the church, too. Consider the word kingdom. We talk about it and sing about it and profess about it all the time here at church. His kingdom will never end. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. Seek ye first the kingdom of God, his kingdom stretch from shore to shore. But you know, even to us, when we're not in church, much less for people who are outside of the church most of the time anyway, uh, you know, kingdom isn't really that familiar a term when you think about it. In fact, if you heard that word anywhere else, you might think it was the start of a children's story. Once upon a time, in a kingdom far, far away, there lived a princess. Or you might be planning a vacation to Disney World and so are looking forward to visiting the Magic Kingdom. Or once in a while in the news you hear about a kingdom in some faraway place like Saudi Arabia. Mostly though, we don't actually have much to do with kingdoms anymore in places like North America and the United States. Usually though, if we do think about a kingdom, we, we assume, uh, and by the way, Matthew, when we were talking about the kingdom of God, but as you know, Matthew always refers to it uh, as the kingdom of heaven. But what are we talking about? Well, usually when you think of the word kingdom, you, you assume it has to be closely tied to a realm, right? A kingdom would have to be a, a physical place with, with borders and such. And if you are therefore inside a certain kingdom, then you would expect that things are going to look and feel a little bit different than anywhere outside of that kingdom. And so in that sense, you, you, you can get this even a little bit if you just travel from the United States to Canada. Right? Now there's a lot that is very similar between the U.S. and our neighbor to the north, but you know, when you get to Canada, everything's in kilometers and, and meters. The stripes on the streets are different, and, and lots of traffic lights have this thing called a, a delayed green. And if you go to Canada anytime in October or November, when I was last there last year, you will notice that everybody, and I mean everybody, is wearing a bright red poppy on his or her lapel to commemorate Remembrance Day. In other words, when you are inside a different kingdom, you can usually tell. Yeah, but the kingdom of God isn't like that. It's not a place. It has no borders. You never drive past a sign that says, Welcome to God's kingdom. Or conversely, you are now leaving God's kingdom. Come again. So, just what is this kingdom thing we talk about and profess about and sing about all the time here at church? And what, what did Jesus mean by it? Because as we saw in our passage this morning and this comes out in all the other Gospels too, no sooner does Jesus pick up where John the Baptist had left off, and his very first message was also John the Baptist's favorite sermon, the kingdom of heaven has come near. 
And in the past, this has sometimes been translated, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or, or the kingdom of heaven is coming close. But how so? I mean, in, in what sense? Well, in a way, our passage from Matthew 4 this morning begins to show us this, and, and we'll look at some of that in just a moment. But, but first, let's notice something very helpful that the writer Dallas Willard wrote in his wonderful book, The Divine Conspiracy. See, a kingdom, Willard observed, can indeed be a a literal realm, a a physical place and all, but when it comes to the kingdom of heaven, the precise location of the kingdom is less important. In fact, the kingdom of heaven can be almost anywhere. And we can understand that the kingdom is near whenever and whenever and wherever the will and the, 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 the desire of the king holds sway. The kingdom of heaven is near whenever and wherever the will and the desire of the king holds sway. What happens and how it happens, what is valued and why it is valued, it all ties in with the king. The kingdom is near anywhere the king is calling the shots. And you know, in that sense, Willard said, we we all have uh, our own little kingdoms in life in a way, right? Uh, Within our homes, right? Mom and dad have rules, expectations, values. And if you're going to be a part of that, that home, that little home kingdom, then you are expected to embody those values, fulfill those expectations, and follow those rules. And even when you're not physically in the home, the values and such are supposed to follow you out into the wider world where you kind of represent mom and dad and, and, and what they value. It would influence how you'll make decisions even when mom and dad aren't watching you. So our homes can be like little little kingdoms. Places of work can be like this too, right? The CEO of the company and then all the vice presidents and managers and directors all the way down, they all have a mission and a desired way to carry out that mission. And so employees are expected to embody that mission too, so such that if a given employee starts to vary a lot from the mission, then he or she might find his or her work imperiled. And so let's say that there's a, a Christian organization that, that cares for the elderly, the elderly for, the, for the aging. And let's say that they declare that their mission is to see the image of God deep inside every person they serve. Even those ravaged by dementia or those who can be kind of difficult to deal with sometimes. Everybody from the CEO on down to the kitchen and custodial staff is supposed to therefore embody that mission. You see the image of God deep inside every single person. And so if a given employee is routinely rude to those people, snaps people's heads off, ignores obvious needs, well, then that person may have no place in that kingdom. As an employee, he or she just wouldn't be embodying the mission. The CEO wouldn't be calling the shots in how that person behaves. And so also the kingdom of heaven comes near anywhere and everywhere that the will of the king, of God our Father through his son Jesus Christ, where the will of that king is calling the shots. And as we can see in our passage, it's a kingdom 
about good news, and it's contagious. And so in Matthew 4, Jesus, in short order, calls four people who immediately leave behind the only life they've ever known, being fishermen in this case, to embark on an adventure, the contours of which that they could not dimly guess or even remotely perceive on that day. And yet Jesus shines with such authority that upon hearing the call, follow me, they literally drop everything and start off into this unknown kingdom under the lead of this still new master and king. I mean, you know, we read those stories all the time, but it's, it's utterly remarkable when you think about it, right? I mean, just picture where you spend your average day. Are you a teacher in a classroom? Are you a mechanic working underneath a car up on a lift? Are, are you an office employee in a cubicle sitting behind a computer? Just picture where you spend your time and then imagine some stranger poking his head in the door underneath the car over top of your cubicle and saying, hey, leave that. Leave the room. Get out from underneath that car. Switch off your computer and then come follow me. And then imagine you actually do that. That's quite remarkable. I mean, your family would surely wonder what was going on. What could explain so radical a step? But there it is in plain sight in Matthew 4. Jesus brings the kingdom of heaven near in his very person, and the next thing you know, others start to feel the power of that kingdom. It's like Jesus is some deep gravity well in space, like, like our sun, such that as soon as objects start to get a little close to him, they just kind of fall into orbit around him. The kingdom is that powerful. It's that magnetic. It's that real. And then the next thing you know, Jesus is teaching up a storm, proclaiming good news, making the kinds of promises for new life and renewal that are either the truest thing anybody's ever heard or the cruelest hoax anybody has ever perpetrated. I mean, Jesus' words really brook no middle ground. But as if that's not enough, suddenly healings of all kinds start to occur. And Matthew gives us quite the roster, sicknesses and diseases of all kinds, people with paralysis, people possessed by demons, people suffering from seizures, chronic pain, constant pain, severe pain. It's like all those TV ads for medicines like Lyrica and Celebrex and Chantix and Humira and Elicus and Trulicity. It's like they all get rolled into one. Everything that ails us has a cure, and his name is Jesus. And thankfully, with Jesus, side effects do not include vomiting, diarrhea, or sudden death. <laughs> the kingdom of heaven has come near, Jesus said. It is at hand. And if at first nobody was quite sure what he was talking about, it soon enough became clear what he meant. That where Jesus went, the will of the king was in full sway. And it made life different. Better, healing, hopeful. The desire of this king is clearly for shalom, for delight, for flourishing. It's all available, it's all near, it's all there for the taking. Of course, not everybody does take it, not then, not now. 
I mean, the kingdom of heaven is not visible just anywhere, and is certainly not visible simply everywhere. In fact, to this day, if, if you were to say to an Orthodox Jew that Jesus is also their long-awaited Messiah, their first question to you will be, oh yes, then where is his kingdom? And by that, they too would mean a, a physical place, or maybe just generally an entire world that is transformed. But the kingdom today, too, is in many places, it's still at hand, but it's not fully tapped into. And to return again to the writer Dallas Willard, he says that maybe what this is like is that process about a century ago of what was called rural electrification. See, in the early 20th century here in the United States, we began unspooling miles and miles of black electrical wires held aloft by tens of thousands of power poles, bringing electricity to rural areas that had never before had access to power. And as Willard says, once those wires ran down miles and miles of, of gravel roads and country lanes in the heartland, there's a sense in which somebody could have pointed to those wires on top of those power poles to say, behold, electricity is at hand. But of course, the thing is, you had to want to hook your house up to it for it to do you any good, and a lot of people didn't dare do it. They feared that electrical current was dangerous, that it might fry them or, or burn their house down. And so for some time, many people chose to keep their wood-burning kitchen stoves, and they kept doing laundry on manual scrub boards and hanging the clothes on the clotheslines in the backyard to dry. Electricity was at hand, but if it didn't hook your house up to it, it did you no good. And that's where the witness of the church comes in also today. You see, we're supposed to go out into God's fallen world and keep doing what Jesus did. Declare that the kingdom of heaven is near, it's close by, it's, it's, it's at hand. And what's more, we're not only supposed to tell people that truth, we're supposed to show them that truth by ourselves living lives of such renewal that it will make it clear that for us and wherever we go, the rule and the desire of our king is holding full sway. The king is calling the shots in our lives, and what's more, we regard that as a wonderful and good thing. You know, the people who eventually declared to hook up their rural farmhouses to the available electricity, you know why they usually did it? Because they got won over by the testimony of their neighbors. Their neighbors convinced them and showed them what a good and safe thing electricity in your home can be. It made life easier. And so once those people got won over by the witness of their neighbors, they, they hooked up. Well, as church communities, as a congregation, as individuals, we're supposed to be walking advertisements for tapping into the love and the power of the kingdom of heaven. As Jesus exuded a kingdom joy, and as his teachings uh, filled people with good news, and as his healings showcased kingdom power, people came from all over that region, Matthew says. Now, of course, as time went by, those crowds tended to get smaller. Uh, once Jesus made it clear that suffering and sacrifice and service are part of the kingdom equation too, 
People who were only looking for personal benefit, well, eventually they dropped away. And that would keep happening until Jesus died utterly alone. You know, the reason we gather every week under the sign of Jesus' cross is because we believe that through that death and sacrifice, interestingly enough, the kingdom of heaven got closer than ever before. Because now even death has been conquered. Now the fullness of the kingdom and its ability to give new life to all who would drop everything to follow Jesus, now because of that cross and the resurrection, all of that is even more obvious, even more glorious. And so today, too, that means living lives of kingdom service and sacrifice and doing so in ways that make others believe that through us, through the church, imperfect though it may be, the kingdom has come near. Indeed, for us as witnesses to the wider world, we need to make it clear that the kingdom of heaven has come upon us and we never want to exit that kingdom Not now, not ever. It is our very life. And that is going to show in how we live too. I think many of you probably know that uh, many years ago, Calvin Seminary began to have a lot of connections to Angola Prison. That's the Louisiana State Penitentiary near Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Angola Prison is a huge prison. It's the size of Manhattan Island in New York. It's got between five and 6,000 prisoners in it, most of them there for life. And through the 80s and early 90s, Angola Prison was known as the bloodiest prison in America. Riots and murders inside the prison walls were common. Violence was rampant. Hope was absent. But then things started to change dramatically in the late 90s when a new warden invited the New Orleans Baptist Seminary to open up a satellite campus right there inside Angola Prison. And that seminary campus began graduating fully credentialed inmate pastors who then ministered to people inside uh, the prison. They, they, they held worship services. They, they created their own hospice unit. They, the pastors visited inmates. They witnessed to it. And, and, and violence dropped dramatically. Today, it's one of the safest prisons in America where they hold over 400 worship services every single month. Well, eventually, uh, we got the idea. We, we visited Angola several times, and eventually we at the seminary got the idea that maybe we should try this in Michigan prisons. And so eventually we partnered with Calvin College, now Calvin University, and and now Calvin University has its first ever satellite campus. It's inside the Hanlon Correctional Facility near Ionia, Michigan. And this program that is graduating inmates with degrees in ministry leadership is already also transforming Hanlon Prison, as Warden Burton will tell anybody who asks. Well, anyway, at one point, point, these, these Calvin students behind bars, they, they, they decided they wanted to plant a big vegetable garden there in the prison, and they were given permission to do so. It's a good garden. It generates a lot of produce, more than they could use there. So these inmate students from Calvin, they, they put their heads together and tried to decide what to do with all the cucumbers and beans and squash they were growing. And, and as they talked, they all hit on a common theme. 
See, almost every single one of them, before they too heard Jesus call their names and said, follow me, almost every single one of them had been guilty of abusing the women in their lives. Girlfriends, sometimes sisters, sometimes spouses and wives, they they had verbally and very often physically abused women in ways for which they are now heartfelt sorry. But then they heard about this ministry in Grand Rapids called Safe Haven. It's a sheltered for battered and abused women and their children. It's a safe house, a a place to be protected, a, a place to begin to put back together shattered lives. So since these inmate Calvin students had once been guilty of abusing women, they decided to donate all their vegetables to Safe Haven Ministries as a way to express their repentance and to quite literally show off the fruits of their newfound faith in Jesus. Now, my friends, I don't know about you, but when I hear a story like that, I am motivated not merely to say the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I am motivated to say because I absolutely believe that when you see such transformed actions, when you see the will of the king calling the shots, the kingdom of heaven has come upon you. It is here. And within the realm of that king's holy influence, we are slowly on beginning to see all things made new. You know, that's the kind of witness we all want for the church. It's the kind of story we'd all like told about our congregations. It's the kind of thing that will eventually make more and more people want to come into and hook up to the power of this kingdom. Because the kingdom of heaven is here. It has come upon you and it is loaded with good news. Thanks be to God and amen. Please pray with me. Lord our God, we give you thanks for your kingdom. We give you thanks for the gospel that reveals the shape and the contour of that kingdom to us. We give you thanks for the Holy Spirit who has turned each of us into a living temple so that we, even now, are participating in that kingdom, witnessing to that kingdom, letting you, our king, call the shots in our lives. May others see this, O Lord, be excited about it. When I ask us about it here at Ivan Rest Church or wherever we are and want to come into that kingdom so they too can hear those words, follow me. Be our vision, O Lord, and may our vision be contagious to so many more. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.